0: Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. If you are new to Southern Mysteries and enjoying the show, you can hear more when you join me on Patreon. As an independent podcast, your support makes Southern Mysteries possible. I couldn't share these stories without the support of people like my newest patrons. So thanks to Yoshana from Pineville, Louisiana, Sarah from Winder, Georgia, Stacey from Birmingham, Alabama, Caitlin from Mount Airy, North Carolina, And thanks to Janetta and Jeff, supporting from Mysterious Locations. I'm thankful to them and all of my patrons. If you want to join in and hear ad-free episodes, the Southern Mysteries archive of more than 60 episodes, plus new monthly patron-exclusive podcast, Audacious Tales of American Crime, sign up now and start listening at patreon.com slash Mysteries. In November of 2012, the Alabama Board of Pardons and Paroles pardoned three men, Haywood Patterson, Charlie Weems, and Andy Wright. The three black men had been convicted of assaulting two white women in 1931, and they were innocent. They were the last of nine young men associated with the case to have their convictions officially cleared from the record their arrest and trials that followed, served as a catalyst for the civil rights movement. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring the history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of the Scottsboro Boys. In 1931, the American Civil Liberties Union released a report called Black Justice, which criticized policies and laws which served as barriers for Black Americans to access education, the right to vote, and the right to trial by their peers. This report focused on the Scottsboro Boys case, which brought to light how brutal the South's system of justice could be and how often it failed Black Americans. University of Missouri-Kansas City Law School professor Doug Linder researched the case He wrote the following about the Scottsboro trials. No crime in American history, let alone a crime that never occurred, produced as many trials, convictions, reversals, and retrials as did the alleged rape of two white girls by nine black teenagers on the Southern Railroad freight run from Chattanooga to Memphis on March 25, 1931. During the Great Depression, hoboing was a common pastime. Many people had been forced out of work, and finding a job often meant traveling hundreds of miles. The easiest way to do that was by freight train. When you have no money, you make desperate moves, like illegally hopping on a train. More than 2 million men and thousands of women resorted to this during the Depression era. It came with great risk and little reward. Thousands of hobos were killed in accidents or by brutal railroad guards known as bulls. Some people took the risk because they were desperate, homeless, or needed to travel to find work. Some took the risk for the sake of an adventure, an escape from the doom and gloom of life during the Great Depression. On March 25, 1931, about two dozen black and white hobos jumped on the Southern Railroad's Chattanooga to Memphis freight. Nine of these hobos were young black men and boys searching for work in Memphis, Tennessee. 19-year-old Charlie Weems, brothers 19-year-old Andy Wright and 13-year-old Roy Wright. 19-year-old Clarence Norris, 18-year-old Haywood Patterson, 17-year-olds Olin Montgomery and Willie Robertson, 16-year-old Ozzie Powell, and 13-year-old Eugene Williams. Williams, Patterson, and the Wright brothers traveled together. The rest were from Georgia, and they did not know each other. Just as the train passed through northern Alabama, a fight broke out between a group of young whites and blacks on the train. Things calmed down for just a bit, before a fresh fight started just as the train was rolling into Stevenson, Alabama. All of these young men were fighting, and some of the young black teams managed to push some of the most violent white teens off the train. Frustrated and likely humiliated, several of the whites ran to the depot and alerted authorities that they had been assaulted by a group of young black men. Local authorities immediately rounded up a posse that met the train at the next station in Paint Rock, Alabama. The posse boarded the train, rounded up the nine black boys and young men, and took them to the Scottsboro Jail. Everyone on that train that didn't have a ticket risked being charged with vagrancy, including two white women, 21-year-old Victoria Price, and 17-year-old Ruby Bates were cotton mill workers and made ends meet as sex workers. When authorities moved in on the train to arrest these nine black youths, these women knew train guards would start checking tickets. They accused the nine of assaulting and raping them to deflect guards from checking their tickets or discovering they had violated the Mann Act, which prohibited crossing a state line for immoral purposes. Their split-second decision led to the destruction of many lives and put these young men and boys in danger. During this era, a black person charged with assaulting a white woman was often lynched. When news spread of the accusation, hundreds of men showed up at the Scottsboro police station to attempt to lynch all nine of the accused. At the request of the local sheriff, the Alabama governor called in the National Guard to protect the prisoners. On March 30th, an all white grand jury handed down an indictment for all nine, now known as the Scottsboro Boys. Trials for the nine started within 12 days of their arrest. To understand what played out in the court in 1931 and for decades to come, it's important to understand aspects of life in the Jim Crow South during the Great Depression. Legal experts note three important things set the stage for what unfolded in Alabama. First, all Americans faced economic hardship during the Great Depression, but Tennessee, Alabama, and many rural areas of the South were hit especially hard. This created an unexpected sort of sub-society in the South, in which unemployed whites and blacks lived together in what were known as hobo shacks. It was an integrated society united by poverty and unemployment right in the midst of the segregated South. Women like Victoria Price and Ruby Bates, who worked in mills during the Depression, often faced wage cuts or lost their jobs. Many of them resorted to sex work to survive and lived within these integrated groups. Second, extreme racism was a way of life in Southern society. This meant not only cruelty towards Blacks by whites, but a societal standard that Blacks were expected to know their place and understand they were inferior. During the Depression, whites who considered themselves to be moderate, even progressive, opposed lynchings and violence but adamantly supported segregation and refused Blacks the right to vote or serve on juries. This was life in the Jim Crow South. Third, federal laws meant to provide Black people protection and rights were largely ignored in the South. Following the Civil War, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution passed. It granted citizenship to all persons born or naturalized in the United States including formerly enslaved people, provided all citizens with equal protection under the laws. It extended the provisions of the Bill of Rights to the states. The 14th Amendment was a commitment on the part of the federal government in 1868 to enforce legal equality between Blacks and whites, a commitment that was not honored for generations. The 14th Amendment meant Black people had the right to vote the right to sit on juries. It also meant black criminal defendants had rights and protections just like white criminal defendants. When Southern states did not uphold those rights, the federal government generally refused to get involved and meddle with civil rights issues in the states. Which brings us back to the Scottsboro Nine. In early April, 1931, the court decided the defendants would be tried by sets of two and three. In the days that followed, there were four Scottsboro trials in the courtroom of Judge A.E. Hawkins, with each seating an all-white jury. None of the boys were allowed contact with their family, and they had less than one hour to consult with defense attorneys Stephen Roddy and Milo Moody. These were the only attorneys the families could afford, Roddy was a real estate attorney from Chattanooga. According to clients and witnesses in the court, he was drunk when he came in for trial and unprepared from day one. And it should be noted he petitioned the court for a change of venue and asked for time to properly prepare for trial because he wasn't very familiar with procedure in Alabama. His request was denied by the judge. He consulted with the Scottsboro Nine- for 25 minutes before he began to defend them. Milo Moody was a local attorney who hadn't tried a case in decades. At 70 years old, he had started to become forgetful. It's generous to say the defense of the Scottsboro Nine was lacking. They declined to cross-examine some witnesses and failed to scrutinize the prosecution's evidence. The cross-examination of accuser Victoria Price lasted just a few minutes, and the defense never bothered to cross-examine the doctors who examined Victoria Price and Ruby Bates following their allegation of rape. If they had, they would have heard the doctors say there was no evidence of a violent attack against these women. Ruby Bates' story about the attack differed from Victoria Price, but the defense never questioned the women about it. All of the trials ended with a guilty verdict. Eight of the nine defendants were sentenced to death. The jury was split when it came to sentencing 13-year-old Roy Wright. They couldn't agree on whether he should be sentenced to death or life imprisonment. A mistrial was declared in his case. Judge Hawkins set the Scottsboro Boys' executions for July 10, 1931. All of the Scottsboro Boys were illiterate, with no access to their families. They were never asked if they had anyone who could help, possibly hire a lawyer for them. In fact, they were never told a lawyer could be appointed to defend them. They had to rely on the ones who showed up in court the day of their trial. Which is why by June 22nd, the executions were stayed, pending an appeal to the Alabama Supreme Court. It would be the International Labor Defense, or the ILD, the legal arm of the Communist Party, not the NAACP, that rushed to the defense of the Scottsboro Boys. There had been hesitation on the part of the NAACP to become involved in what was a controversial case in the South. There were concerns over what could happen to their organization if they stepped in to defend these young men, and the allegation of rape— by even one of them, ended up being true. While the NAACP debated defending the Scottsboro Boys, the legal arm of the Communist Party moved quickly to defend them. This was on brand for the ILD, which stood for workers' rights and voice support for Southern Blacks during Jim Crow. It didn't hurt that they knew the case would be great PR and a recruiting tool. The Communist Party called the Scottsboro Trials a murderous frame-up, and the ILD petitioned to be named their attorneys. Within weeks, the NAACP acknowledged all of these young men were likely innocent of the charges and convinced well-known defense attorney Clarence Darrow to take the case in Alabama. But it was too late. The Scottsboro Boys chose the assistance from the ILD. In January 1932, the Alabama Supreme Court Voted to affirm the death sentences, but ruled 13 year old Eugene Williams should not have been tried as an adult. Following an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, the convictions of all the Scottsboro boys were overturned. The court ruled the defendant's rights under the 14th Amendment had been denied by the state of Alabama. In a landmark ruling, the court ruled all of the Scottsboro boys would have new trials. The legal campaign to free them came with continued disappointments for the defendants. The first to be retried was Haywood Patterson, who was considered by police in Alabama the most aggressive in his defense and therefore the ringleader of the Scottsboro Nine. In April 1933, Patterson was once again found guilty. A surprising outcome because of new evidence that had been presented at his second trial that supporters were certain would lead to exoneration. Ruby Bates took the stand for the defense and recanted her story. She testified that Victoria Price came up with the idea of crying rape to avoid arrest. Medical testimony was also brought into the conversation in the second trial, the defense highlighted the medical examiner's report of the examination of Victoria and Ruby, which clarified there was no evidence of the violent assault the women claimed happened on the train. Despite that powerful testimony, the jury returned a guilty verdict and recommended the death penalty for Patterson. The presiding judge, James Horton, knew tensions were running high, so he read the sentence into record and postponed future trials of the remaining Scottsboro 9 to allow a cooling-off period. When court reconvened on June 22, 1933, everyone expected Judge Horton would be setting a date for the next trial. They were shocked when Judge Horton made a move that ultimately cost him his career. He overrode the jury's verdict and recommended the defendants be granted a new trial. In his ruling, Judge Horton said Victoria Price's testimony did not hold up. She claimed head wounds left her covered in blood and that her clothes were covered with blood and semen from at least six of these young men. Judge Horton met with the medical examiners who treated her and reported no signs of a head wound, no blood, nothing else found on her clothes, There was presence of semen inside both women, but the judge said he had to take into consideration their testimony in which they acknowledged they had consensual sex with men they met on that train. Judge Horton also mentioned Ruby and Victoria had previously made false allegations of rape against two black men they felt had insulted them. The prosecutor sought a new judge, and new trials for the Scottsboro Boys. All of the cases were transferred to Judge William Callahan's court. In December, 1933, Haywood Patterson and Clarence Norris were tried, found guilty, and sentenced to death. Of the seven remaining defendants awaiting retrial, five remained in prison, and two were transferred to juvenile court, where they were later convicted. Patterson and Norris's conviction was appealed and upheld by the Alabama Supreme Court. In January 1935, the US Supreme Court agreed to review the third convictions. On April 1st, the court handed down an historic ruling that blacks having been excluded from jury rolls in Jackson County deprived these defendants of equal protection and rights under the 14th Amendment. This ruling set the stage for the integration of juries in the South and across the country. Haywood Patterson faced trial in Jackson County again in January 1936. This time, the jury pool of 100 included 12 black people. All of the 12 were challenged by the state and removed. The trial before an all-white jury ended with a guilty verdict. Patterson was sentenced to 75 years in prison. The Scottsboro Defense Committee, organized to help defend and fundraise for the cause to free the Scottsboro Nine, made an unexpected compromise with the prosecution to end what they all knew would be an ongoing vicious cycle of continued trials for the defendants. Judge Callahan openly opposed any talk of compromise, But the prosecution moved forward with deals in 1937 which meant none of the defendants would be executed. On July 24, 1937, four of the nine defendants were released from prison and declared innocent. Olin Montgomery, Roy Wright, Willie Robertson, and Eugene Williams. The prosecutor also announced Ozzie Powell innocent of the rape charges, but he was serving a 20-year prison sentence for attacking a guard. The Scottsboro Defense Committee continued the fight to free their clients. They argued the remaining Scottsboro boys who were in prison should be freed because it was impossible for some to be innocent and some to be guilty when they all faced the same charges. They appealed to Governor Bibb Graves. In October 1938, an agreement was finalized with the governor to pardon them but Graves insisted on the admission of guilt from the four prisoners before he set them free. An admission they refused to offer, saying they were all innocent. In the end, they remained in prison, with Clarence Norris's death sentence being commuted to life. Clarence was paroled in 1946 and went into hiding. The Scottsboro Nine were spared execution but they never recovered from the trauma of injustice and what they experienced in Alabama courtrooms and prisons. After spending 13 years in prison, Haywood Patterson escaped in 1949. A year later, he was found in Michigan. Alabama requested Patterson be extradited, but the Michigan governor denied the request. Soon after, Patterson was involved in a bar fight, and ended up stabbing a man. He was convicted of manslaughter and returned to prison. By 1952, he died of cancer. Charlie Weems spent 12 years in prison and was paroled in 1943. He fell in love and started a family, but reportedly died not long after his release. Andy Wright was sentenced to 99 years, but paroled in the mid-1940s. He struggled on the outside, ended up in New York where he returned to prison for violating parole on another charge. By 1950, he was granted parole and seemed to settle down. Andy remained close with Clarence Norris, and they had plans for a reunion with Andy's brother, Roy. Following Roy's release in 1937, he toured with the Scottsboro Defense Committee, speaking in dozens of cities to help raise money for the defense of his brother and the rest of the Scottsboro Nine who were still in jail. Roy found a sponsor who paid for vocational school. He completed his education, served in the Army, and married. But in 1959, everything fell apart for Roy when he returned home from service and discovered his wife at the home of another man. Believing she had been unfaithful, Roy killed his wife, returned to their apartment, and shot himself. After Roy's death, his brother Andy returned to their hometown of Chattanooga, where he died sometime in the 1960s. Ozzy Powell was paroled in 1946. He returned to his hometown in Georgia. Olin Montgomery, while well, he dreamed of becoming a musician or lawyer, When he was released in 1937, he worked as a dishwasher and laborer, earned enough money to buy a guitar and a saxophone, but his musical dreams were never fulfilled. He turned to drink to deal with the trauma of what he experienced behind bars and could rarely hold down a job, traveling back and forth between New York and Georgia. It's said that by 1960, he returned to Georgia and settled there until his death. Eugene Williams and Willie Robertson had been released along with Montgomery in 1937. Williams moved in with relatives in St. Louis who were able to help him adjust to life after Scottsboro. He was able to maintain a stable life. Willie Robertson returned to New York City where he found steady work. His asthma had been aggravated by his time in jail which left him continually dealing with health issues. And as he put it, just a lot of bad luck. One night, Robertson was in a Harlem bar when a fight broke out. He was not involved in the fight, but was arrested for disorderly conduct. Robertson said of the arrest that he was once again a victim of almost inconceivable ill will against others and felt he was doomed to be cast in the role of martyr. Years later, Robertson died of an asthma attack. Clarence Norris, who had jumped parole and left Alabama in 1946, remained in hiding for decades. He married and became a father, settled down in Brooklyn, New York. In 1976, he approached the NAACP to ask for help in seeking a pardon. By that October, Alabama Governor George Wallace agreed to the request and pardoned Norris, who was 64 years old. That December, Norris attended a holiday event where he was asked how he would change things if he could go back and live his life again. He replied, I would not come back to this life at all. Clarence Norris was the last of the Scottsboro Nine. He died of Alzheimer's disease. In 1989, in 2010, the Scottsboro Boys Museum opened in Scottsboro, Alabama. In April 2013, Alabama Governor Robert Bentley stood at the museum as he signed legislation exonerating the Scottsboro Nine of all guilt in the case. That November, the Alabama Board of Pardons and Paroles agreed to pardon Haywood Patterson, Andy Wright, and Charlie Weems, 82 years after the Scottsboro Boys had been arrested. These three were the last of the Scottsboro accused to have convictions in their records. Alabama Senator Arthur Orr co-authored the legislation to pardon the Scottsboro Boys, the day the legislation was signed, Orr reminded Alabamians that you can't go back in time and change this unfortunate event in Alabama's history, saying this legislation is a significant step towards recognizing and correcting this gross injustice. It is never too late to right a wrong. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. A note about the ripple effect of the journey toward justice for the Scottsboro accused. There was one Alabama judge who stood up for them and did the right thing. He paid a price for it that pales in comparison to what the Scottsboro Nine suffered, which is why he never complained about the fallout in his life. Judge James Horton lost his judicial career and a long-expected political career when he overturned what he ruled was an unjust guilty verdict. He faced tremendous pressure while presiding over the Scottsboro trials, pressure his family later read about when they came across a lard bucket filled with letters and newspaper clippings. Now, no one knows why the judge used a lard bucket as a storage container, but throughout the retrials, he had filled it with more than 700 letters and telegrams and those newspaper clippings from people across the country, even around the world. His family made archivists aware of the bucket. after his death. They analyzed the documents inside, which included death threats. If the judge didn't make sure the Scottsboro Boys' trials ended with a guilty verdict there were also hundreds of letters of support for the Scottsboro Boys and the judge. Just a reminder of the pressure he was under while presiding over the trials and how determined he was to try to make sure justice was served. His family maintains to this day, Judge Horton never regretted his decision. When asked about it in a 1966 interview, Horton responded with his grandfather's motto, which had been his court motto, let justice be done, though the heavens may fall. If you wanna learn more about the Scottsboro case and trials, everyone involved, I highly recommend the PBS documentary, Scottsboro, an American Tragedy. There are also several books, including a couple that were written, in conjunction with some of the Scottsboro accused, I will make sure to link those along with all the episode sources in the show notes at com. Thank you so much for listening.